You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 15. It is a few days ago. Rao and I are in the lost city, and I am wondering if we will ever speak to one another again. Ever since she gave her bracelet away, she has been distant. My failure to bring down the goat has clearly displeased her. She seems ashamed of me. My arm is still aching from where this oversized beast wrenched it aside. But it hurts far more not to be able to meet her eye. She keeps touching the empty space on her arm. It is clear to me that this bracelet was special. Perhaps a family member gave it to her. I hand her my peace offering, which she stares at, dispassionately. I know this cannot make up for her loss, and casting my mind back to the flashes I can recall of her village, I can see why she might be missing her home. She left me for a time when I was at my weakest, and I was alone with an older tiger, whom I decide is her father. When I drift into consciousness, he is sat in a corner, fashioning something with his paws. I understand he chose not to sit beside me, as it would be a frightening shadow to wake up in. We regard one another wordlessly. Then he places what he has been working on beside the bed. I weakly start to sit up, nausea returning. He nudges the offering towards me with an enormous black claw. I reach out and pick up the smooth, slender object and hold it up to the light. It is a little carved man, roughly sculpted but clear in its symbolism. He has made it by studying my form. He seems so quiet, solemn and gentle a father. I would like Harald to be able to return to him. Later when we try to sleep, I find myself watching her in the dawn light. She looks so uncomfortable and restless, her great back to me, armor covering the broad stripes I know are there, her wounded tail twitching back and forth. I am taken with the idea of approaching and curling up beside her. I can already see the angry snarl that she might make if I attempt this. Her enormous paws will be no longer gentle. She will reject me. Maybe that would be for the best. Fear holds me back. I do not disturb her. I remain on my pile of moss, listening to the far-off calls of those amazing elephants. Soon afterwards we are hurrying through the streets. She smells something, and I have seen that look on her face before. It takes a while to understand the subtleties of tigers. 
But now I can read when she is calm, when she is upset, and when she is afraid. The ears are a telltale sign, as of course is the tail. Her eyes widen, her jaw drops, and she moans as we make our way through. She is dreadfully afraid, which makes me tremble so hard I can barely keep my footing. And then we see him. The Brujo, the shaman who has been following us, stands down the street. He towers some eleven feet, even taller than Harao, and walking straighter than she does. A golden tattoo adorns the red fur on his shoulder. He carries a long, broad spear, and he is looking straight at us. Harao, no. Harao uses her paw to tell me to go. Okay. She is so forceful that I do not argue and dart off down the alley nearby. I stop in the next street. A collection of horrible lizard birds hiss at me from the rooftops and I am reminded of the screaming rat-like creature whose venom now sits in a vial inside my bracer. I recall in a bazaar back in Puebla when I was very young. Some men put an animal very similar to this into battle against a rattler. I was afraid for it, as I had seen what snake bites could do to a full-grown man. This rodent won out against the serpent, just as the one in the jungle did. The men had brought it all the way from Africa, and they told me it was called a mongoose. The mongoose we encountered, if that was what it was, even stood up to Harao. It made to attack her, despite being vastly overmatched in size and power. I recall my companion flinching and escaping and the disorientating effect of its aggressive cries and gnashing poison teeth. Couple that with the fact that the serpent had come after this agile creature in the role of a predator and lost the battle. It is so clear to me now which roads I can take. Ahead lies the waterfall. I can almost hear the rushing sound as the river crashes down in the distance. There is the doorway back to America. I may survive the trip from here to there with what I have learned. Then I shall return to the riverboat, walk back to Memphis, explain my absence to my father, and spend the next month trying to make it up to him. That is, if he is still in the city. This misgiving has come back to me time and again since I arrived in the jungle. What if he moves on without me? Would he wait? Would he search for me? Or... I could pull the bone knives Harao made for me, free of the fastenings on the belt I fashioned. I could go back there and lend what little strength and intimidation I can muster to protect her from this brujo. I can be the mongoose. But what if I make things far worse? The city is peaceful, aside from the growling behind me, echoing down the alleyway as Harao and our pursuer engage harsh words in their language. I am just a little boy. A little boy who is going back to save his friend.
barrel around and sprint to the next alley along, adjusting my weapons. I pause a moment as I select my venom. She knows this tiger. I cannot fatally poison him. It must be her decision to take his life. I pull out the mongoose venom and apply it to my blades. My fingers shaking. I round the corner and the cats are turning over and over, slamming one another against the floor and walls. The brujo has Raal pinned. Neither of them sees me. I must act now. I rush in and punch at his flank with all of my might. <laughs> he looks down at me and I pull myself away. The bones are so deeply embedded in his side that they come free of my bracer, leaving me absolutely defenseless. Parada, por favor. I do not know if I have helped at all, but I begin to retreat as he lunges in to chase me. If far down this street, I see lions are walking towards us. They raise their guns and fire upon the tigers. Instead of the crack of gunpowder, there are only quiet whistling sounds. Rao struggles with the brujo again, attempting to hold him back, but he hits on the side of the head with his club. They slump down as the lions close in. I am filled with horror as I look upon my poor friend. Have they killed her? No. Wait. They have shackles and chains with them. The tigers are only asleep. But now the lions have seen me, and I have only one second to react. Shall I attempt escape? Shall I attempt to fight them? Rush in against all odds and throw everything into one foolhardy brave gamble? A lioness in a fine red coat steps in to bear down on me. I have not seen any other cats dressed like this. These lions seem more like the men I knew in America. In a flash, I change my plan and begin to caper about. The lions stare as I whoop and dance, cartwheeling from side to side. I rid myself of every scrap of cunning and gaze up with open eyes rolling onto my back like a house cat, ready to be petted. There is a little monkey in this performance, but it is from the moments we saw them at rest and at play, as they idled in repose, not during the savagery of the attack. The lioness in the red coat picks me up and holds me in front of her face. I put out my tongue and make endearing noises. She growls something over her shoulder, and a lion from the back steps forward with a cage. It is into this that the lioness places me, firmly, but not roughly. I make sad noises, and she hefts the cage herself, easily bearing my weight. I recognize the type of build of this thing. I have seen similar before. It is a poacher's cage. Over the next few days I maintained this facade, begging for food and water and bestowing affection in return.
The other lions seem very respectful of Redcoat. She rides an enormous elephant at the front of this long procession of cages upon a wheeled train. I search in vain to see if I can spot her out, but if she is still here, she must be too far back. I also look for the Brujo, but there is no sign of him either. Nobody inspects my clothing. I still have my bracer and the concealed venom. I sit in my cage and think every minute about how to get out of this. What would Harau do? Eventually we reach a ship upon a white beach with white sands. Redcoat grabs my cage from the cart, carries me over the wooden dock to where the ship is moored, and hefts me up the gangplank. I spot a painting on the side that is similar to one I saw in a picture book. It is a whale. So that is what I shall call this ship. All about I see lions moving into position to prepare the ship to launch. Behind us the cats are being pulled out of their cages. I strain my eyes to see my friend, but I am pulled from view before that can happen. Raidcoat takes me through the ship and into her cabin. She sets me down, props herself on the bed and looks at me. I cock my head playfully and chirp. She flips the catch on my cage and opens the door, taking me out and letting me pull my way up her arm to balance on her shoulder. This is now something I have had a great deal of practice in. She makes a noise I recognize as being one of pleasure in these cats. I nozzle against her and try to entirely mask my fear of those enormous teeth. She could take my head off in one bite, and as those big green eyes look into mine, I wonder when she might sense my deception. I start to search her for food, mewling, and she makes a laughing noise and fetches me some fruit. I avoid the purple berries, remembering my ordeal in the jungle some nights back, but I gustle down the one that I recognize as being like Atualfo mangoes. The lioness removes her red coat, stretches, and lies on her bed, watching me eat. When I am done, I leave my fingers clean and timidly approach, making to curl up beside her. She folds me in with an enormous paw, and I feel her warm fur press against me. I have to imagine her out to control my quivering. I lie for what feels like hours, afraid to move or even look at my surroundings, in case Redcoat spots the reasoning in my eyes. There is a knock at the door, and Redcoat growls. Another lioness enters, this one standing very straight and proper. Redcoat stands, and the two exchange many words in their language. I have no idea what is being said, although the prim one does glance at me on one occasion. Not with malice, but with curiosity. Captain Beatrix, I've got a question about the prisoners. Come in, Dr. Shearer. Have a cup of tea.
the stock doctor. The great Albion Trading Company call them the stock. We've lost nearly a quarter of them on the way here. I was given estimates of half that before we began. Those estimates were based on our previous expeditions. We were exploring new territory this time. Surely you expected more. We had to go further in, and and yes, the return journey was clearly too much for some of them. May I suggest next time making several trips for smaller loads? My dear doctor, we've got deadlines to meet. Can't have one group lazing about in the hold while we go fetch another. It costs more to feed them, as well as the crew, for those long waits. Especially if the spoilage rate then decreases. Spoilage? Yes, spoilage. Um, sorry, I've... I've just never heard it referred to in that way. The GATC doesn't like to use wishy-washy terminology. You're a doctor. Surely you understand the importance of being... clinical. I signed up for this position to best preserve lives and well-being in transit. And? And it seems, correct me if I'm wrong here, like you'd be going on numbers, whatever I advise you with. Oh, Dr. Shearer, are you feeling unappreciated? Of course your expertise is needed. You think any of those old sea cats out there can fix a broken leg or sew up a head wound? If one of the stock... If one of the stock did break their leg, you'd want me to help fix it? Of course. So the GATC is invested in them? To the point of sale, absolutely. Besides, it's terrible business practice to have diseased moggies crawling off a ship at Lyon. You absolutely do have to keep them and us at our best. I think I understand your priorities a little better now. There was one other thing I wanted to mention as well. I came across the term loose pact on one of the ledgers. Yes, that's just how we store them on the way across. I'm not a fan of tight packing. So that's more stock with less room to move. Correct? Correct. Although, strictly between you and I, it's really no room to move. And you avoid that out of compassion for the stock? Partly. The numbers aren't as good at the other end if you type pack them, are they? Very astute. (laughs) In my experience, no. The percentage on spoilage always goes up too high and our margins suffer. Well... As long as the margins are being looked after. I'm not awfully fond of your tone, Doctor. I'm sure you remember what happened on the Mornington. The Carfax. The Sangrea. Uprisings. Every crew member butchered, slaves adrift, lost on the ocean, dying of hunger and thirst, all executed when they were found by other ships. Regrettable. Regrettable fiascos all. We must learn from what those crews did wrong, adjust the procedures, and follow them to the letter. This talk of yours is steering towards foolhardy oversights that could mean the deaths of everyone on board, including, of course, this stock that so concerns you. 
Do not worry about me, Captain. I won't make waves. I'm not going to go talking to the crew about this. I'm sure they would have very little interest anyway. To be honest, I'm just... I'm just feeling the operation out. Well, naturally. Your diligence is just as valued as your medical expertise. I'm sure you want a fine recommendation from your captain. That is, if you believe you have a long-term career in the trading industry. I understand, Captain. I'll let you get back to your trophy. Thank you for the tea. Thank you. To your post. No more dilly-dally. Oh, one last thing. That first mate. Isn't he a pip? He's a psychopath. A neurotic, violent disaster just waiting to happen. You need to keep him in line or he's going to start... Spoiling the stock. He'll stay in line. He knows what will happen if I'm displeased with his performance. But, (laughs) duly noted. Good day, Doctor. I wish I had understood that. I will need to know as much as possible. If I am to escape... You have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Miguel, performed by Alex Shaw. Captain Beatrix, performed by Loretta Saylor. Dr. Shearer, performed by Laura Kate Dale. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. You also heard Tempting Secrets, The Escalation, Lost Frontier, and Whimsy Groove, performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Dan Mayer, Ian Hopwood, Megan Hopwood, Erish Traverse, Nick Grugan, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisholm, Livio de la Cruz, and Scott Corzine. Remember, if you love New Century, to rate and review it on iTunes or pass it on to your buddies. This thing lives and dies by its fans, and it's one thing for me to talk it up on Twitter, quite another to have it recommended. Pat Rothfuss mentioned on Twitter that he was looking for a fun podcast comparable to Welcome to Night Vale. Short episodes, narrative-based, any suggestions? Ian and Megan Hopwood, Nick Grugin and Brendan Agnew all cited New Century to him. That's hugely appreciated, guys. And since Mr. Ruffus has some 83,000 followers, it's actually a fantastic way to get this show noticed on a grander scale. So if you folks see someone asking something similar, do not hesitate to recommend New Century.